That was the sound of the street in Madrid this weekend on May 2nd, the first time in six weeks that adults who do not have children were allowed outside of their house for any kind of recreation. It's a wild system they're setting up there with each age group getting their own time slot and a specific radius in which they can amble, all of which will expand in four separate phases throughout the summer. It's a labyrinth of rules, but we would kill over here in the U.S. to have science-based rules on how to reopen. This week on the trip, we have three interviews, just the way I like them. From Singapore, Paris, and somewhere in suburban Maryland. It's not much in common except that I admire everyone that I talk to. Cheryl Lulentan is a journalist who talked to me about her two weeks in a quarantine resort in Singapore. Pauline Eiferman is a photo editor at Le Mans newspaper in Paris who helps guide how the pandemic looks in France. But before those two, there is our first interview, Drew McGarry, one of my favorite writers on Twitter or in GQ or at Deadspin before it died. And he's got a new novel out called Point B that I inhaled like amyl nitrate. It was so fast and relaxing. He calls Point B his first posthumous novel because he finished it in the aftermath of his 2018 brain hemorrhage, an event which distressingly happened the day before he and I were supposed to have gotten drinks in New York, way back when. And now, who knows the next time Marylanders and New Yorkers will be able to meet in person again. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now, here's Drew and I talking about his new novel, Point B. So to, to set the context, your, your characters live in a world where people can just port in any which direction. It's a new technology that allows them to become kind of instantly globalized and rootless um and they Correct. they can kind of bounce you know from from one continent to the other within minutes um yep and the effects that that's had on on kind of people and relationships in the world are so terrible that they really make me regret my frequent flyer status uh <laughs> in the past years um so tell me about that were you were you taking aim at the heady global traveler of today? No. Um, no, because the one thing is that, because I had already written a dystopian novel called The Postmortal, where everyone uh, everyone can live forever. Um, like there's no aging, there's a cure for aging, and everyone lives forever. And of course, that has massive, massive repercussions that are not good, despite it being very promising uh, at the beginning. And it was the same. It, it is the same on the surface of this book where everyone can teleport in point B and that has its own series of complications. However, I wanted to make sure this time around that I didn't have a book that ended with the world ending. Right? <laughs> because, because then people just would have been like, well, he just did it again. He just killed the world again. <laughs> this guy's trying to tell us something. So, so, so even though the postmortal is really sort of about the story, a story of of that technology, the technology has to be had to be more of a sort of circumstantial element of this story, so it could be more character driven and, and shit like that. Because uh, you know, if I'm lecturing people about society and all that stuff, that doesn't work. It, 
it only would have worked if it was in service of the story of Anna Huff. And if it, if it didn't work in service of that, then really it wasn't, it wasn't worth putting into the book. I get that. I mean, I guess I see in, in her character, she essentially feels like she comes to see the, the, it's the little things that, uh, that make a difference. And without giving away the ending, there's, you know, freedom feels very different than I think a freedom as I would describe it or would have described it before this pandemic. <laughs> so the freedom to like, you know, to have, have uh, noodle soup at a, at, a, at a stall in Vietnam and, and then be back home, you know, before you know it, that's, um, that's actually not quite the, the, the payoff that uh, in this story that you think it might be. No, that's that's right, and that's the pitch that you know the Silicon Valley gives people when they whenever they invent or pretend to have invented something that already existed. It's oh, it's a new freedom, and you you know it's going to totally change how you live your life, and it does change how you live your life. But there's always a sort of greasy film on it that doesn't wash off. You know, like I use Uber or did use Uber, <laughs> right, and. Uh, you know, it was incredibly convenient and, you know, could, you know, helped a lot in terms of never having to hail a taxi, never driving drunk and stuff like that. But then there's also this other sort of gross side to it that you can, you know, that that really comes to the fore the more you use it. I love the fact that all of the baddies in this book are kind of incel, you know, Steve Jobsy and tech lords, <laughs> which is a, is a is a group that I could definitely get behind casting uh, in that role. And then I read right at right. the end at the acknowledgments, which you put at the end of the book, uh, about how, you you know, one day you hope to go to all the places that people who had helped you put this book together and kind of, you know, uh, giving you feedback on these distant locales. Um, uh, and you said, you know, that, that, that your goal would be to go there. How, I mean, how do you feel about that kind of travel? I mean, I was always pro-travel and, uh, and in fact, felt kind of spoiled because my work as both a journalist and as an author, because I've been on book tours and stuff like that, took me to places where my uh, my wife and kids were not able to come with me. So, like, I've been to Seattle and they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, I, you know, I got to go on the Kid Rock cruise. They didn't, uh, to my <laughs> wife's relief. Uh, you know, and I got to go to Austin a bunch of times and I got to go to all these places and I got to, and I got to travel on my own terms. Um, which I thought was, you know, really spectacular, and I wanted to do it again. And in fact, before the pandemic hit, um, I had come into some some money, and 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 I I said to the wife and kids, I was like, we're gonna fucking do it this time, because we're I'm always very very cheap, and if I'm traveling in someone else's dime, that's great. But spending my own money on travel, I was always too worried about spending for college. I was like, fuck it, we're gonna go all gonna go to Paris, and we're gonna stay in an Airbnb and all that stuff. So I made all the all the accommodations like in, I want to say like December or something like that. And January comes and like coronavirus is sort of, crest, you know, sort of ring its head in Asia. And my daughter is like, oh, I'm worried about the virus. I was like, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And because this is going to be their first trip abroad. And they were so fucking pumped for it. And then, uh, and then it gets worse and worse. And I'm, and I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, we can still go. We still probably go. When were you supposed to go, go and do I, this? We were supposed to go two weeks ago. Oh. Uh, but when this is over, and if if and when we can travel again, I will 
absolutely travel again. I am pro travel. It's just reading your book. I, you know, one of the things that it reminded me of because you have parents and children who are constantly sort of porting away from each other, <laughs> which is, you know, is again, I'm a very egotistical and self-centered reader. I was thinking, God, that that sure does sound a lot like me. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I mean, sure, I got to take a cab to the airport instead of just, you know, pressing a button on my phone. But uh, ultimately, there is a life that we think is desirous that that you're going for that um, is feels a lot like porting away from the dinner table at dinner time. Uh, and this book does an amazing job of of sort of laying out the the kind of the logical extreme of of those desires, and they don't look so good when you're put out on the table like that. Um, it looks like there might be higher values than uh, just the ability to to go halfway around the world uh, for a little bit of uh, fresh air. <laughs> Yeah, the the nice thing about it though is like I went to the bank today and it was like I went to like fucking Thailand. Like it was like, you know, cuz it was like like I had to pack, like I had to make sure I had a wipe and and I had to make sure I had hand sanitizer, I had to make sure I had my mask and like all my papers, but like and I had to take my my fucking ATM card out of my wallet so that I wouldn't touch my wallet with, like, diseased hands while I was at the ATM. Oh, I'm doing that, so, like, yeah, yeah. So, like, all, like, all like extremely basic crap from, like, my past life before the virus is all of a sudden an exotic journey. I'm like Marco Polo going to the goddamn Target now. All you're missing is, like, a Rick Steves travel fanny pack to keep your, uh, you know, <laughs> your diseased cards separate yeah. from your clean ones. All right, what's next for you? Uh, besides uh, rebooking Paris, I'm working on a lot of stuff. I'm working actually working on another book, and then uh, I'm still advice doing the uh, the old Deadspin Fun Bag. Of course, now it's not the Deadspin Fun Bag. Uh, I'm at um, Untitled Unnamed Temporary Sports Blog this weekend for the draft, and then uh, I'm at uh, Gen, which is Medium's in-house political magazine, uh, covering. You know, I was there to cover the election, but. Of course, obviously now, the only thing people are reading about, much to my surprise, actually, is, is about the pandemic because I personally don't want to read a goddamn thing. I know. <laughs> the only thing I want to read is it's over, uh, because more, you know, because if it's past five p.m. at night and I look at Twitter and I see all the horrible shit going on, I just I'm not gonna be able to sleep that night. So, but that's but I uh, I of course do think about it and give it thought. So so I'm over I'm over there, and then there's more stuff percolating because now's the time to I have the opportunity I have the time to uh, busy myself trying to lay foundation for what's going to happen when this is all over and what kind of work I'm going to be doing so I'm doing it all right Drew well I'm going to let you get back at it Um, thank you for for this book your first posthumous novel of many I hope thank you so much Nathan I really appreciate it man It was my great fortune to work alongside the next person you'll hear from for many years in our Brooklyn office. Pauline Eiferman was Roads and Kingdom's first photo editor, first employee of any kind, in fact, and I came to know her as a good person and an excellent writer with an eye for the bigger story behind every photograph. She's now in Paris working for Le Mans newspaper, where she is helping to dictate how this pandemic looks for France's paper of record. Okay, we are recording. Hey. 
All right. There you are. Hey, Pauline. So let's start with your job at Le Monde yes. as someone who helps decide what this pandemic looks like in France. Okay, so my job is basically to uh, supervise the photography on the website of Le Monde. So I am in charge of uh, assigning photographers and deciding uh, photography from agencies, etc., that go in the online version of how we cover things, because at Le Monde, there's still a kind of a big divide between the print and online uh, side of things. Um, and are you one of these uh, millennials that they talk about? Uh, apparently who... so. Yes, I am. <laughs> who have come in to rescue a, an aging legacy publication. Well, I don't think they actually see it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fair enough. But yes. Um, but so like the main thing that's uh, been kind of new, um, except for everyone working from home, which has been very, very new for most people who work at Le Monde, because working from home is not a thing that you do here at all. And especially in this newspaper, there's a lot of people from all ages and they're not at all used to working and even young people, they're not used to working from home. So this is this has all been uh, very crazy for a bunch of reasons. But uh, one of the main thing is that we've been covering this pandemic as uh, live, which is what we call this uh, kind of never ending live feed of information. Um, and it's been going on, it's been open for the past 42 days. So we basically, yeah, it's been like, so it's a thing that we, it's a tool that we kind of invented when um, there was the terrorist attacks. And it's basically a tool that we use for uh, ongoing news where we can get, where news is coming in from a lot of angles, whether it's, um, sources or photography or video or all of our correspondence being mobilized that sends us information. I'm picturing something like a war room where where you sleep in shifts or, <laughs> you know, with a red alert light going off in the background. Is that, is that the, the general vibe? Um, yeah, I mean, now that everyone's at home, I think it's a little bit more chill and there's definitely more cats and dogs involved. But uh, I remember you telling me about mealtimes at Le Monde as one of these, like, you won't believe the way that, <laughs> you know, people work and how communal it was. Yeah. And like almost like a bell goes off and everybody goes down to eat at length together. Yes. Um, I can imagine the transition for you guys to remote work is... Uh, like really just missing some of the glue that might have kept uh, the the whole team together. Yeah, I think uh, mostly just the cigarette breaks and the and the and the eating together and that kind of community is is difficult. But uh, on the on the other hand, you get to see what other people's apartments look like, and that's pretty interesting. <laughs> I can't imagine a harder story to kind of wrap your head around as a photo editor than coronavirus. Um, how are you? How are you thinking about showing this particular catastrophe, and has it evolved uh, as as this war room has gone on? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about how we covered it before it arrived in France and how we covered it since it did, because when it was far away, you know, it was just this kind of thing that was happening. I guess we didn't really realize. Um, so even visually, it was very repetitive. It was we didn't really try to make it very personal or to understand it also because it was very hard to get to Wuhan and to a lot of places where this was happening. So just these kind of like weird China photos of men in spacesuits, uh, drones yeah, telling drones, people to go indoors. Exactly. Like all the crazy shit that you're thinking from far away, like, oh, my God, this is insane, but it doesn't really hit you. Um, and then once it does, that changes everything. And I, I do, I mean, I'm sure maybe it's a coincidence, but I saw some of your favorite places in France in that, uh, you know, sort of Le Monde, uh, France under lockdown photo essay, including Marseille and Chamonix. And yeah. um, what what was it like, um, you know, seeing seeing those places that you uh, that you love kind of in lockdown? So when I thought of this project, the idea was really just to do like, a, OK, it's been a month. Uh, we've all lived through this crazy thing. Um, where is everyone's head at? Like, what are people doing? Uh, what's the atmosphere like everywhere? And so we just picked out 16 different places that were just representative of France. So we had the cities, we had the countryside. We also just decided that some photographers we liked ended up, you know, doing their lockdown in some random place. And so we thought it would be interesting to have them in. And it was a kind of a mix. Um, but I think what came out of it was uh, not at all depressing. I mean, all the photos that were sent to me were like very moving and kind of funny and and um, more about like human adapt humans adapting and and just uh little stories here and there of people just figuring it out so i didn't have the feeling when i got all these photos that like fuck we've just like what is happening to our country it was kind of the opposite it was like you know people moving on and figuring out how that can work for them and and i think in the end what we published was uh kind of a was a pretty positive view of of I mean under the circumstances what uh what humans are able to to do right there wasn't a lot of the calamity porn of you know stretchers being loaded into ambulances it was right. more these kind of touchstones of a little bay in Marseille to go swimming in or a, a town square somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. And I mean, it also says something about French people not really respecting the lockdown, but that's, you know, <laughs> part of the genes. So what does your day in lockdown look like? Um, I wake up, I get on my computer. <laughs> I try not to go out too often. I have a balcony so I can observe people and and I have a little bit of a street I can look at, um, but it's actually a little bit sad because I have the one of the things that I can see is the Resto du Coeur, which is a, a famous uh, NGO that distributes uh, uh, um, f uh, meals for poor people. 
and uh, I have never seen so many people line up at this thing. It's crazy, and it's now twice a day. I think it used to be maybe once a week or twice a week, and now it's just uh, full of of people who've lost, uh, I think, their way of making uh, of managing their uh, their their lives. So they come to this uh, geo, but. But yeah, apart from that, I mean, um, yeah, on my on my side, I'm not going to complain. I'm I'm working. I'm working a lot. And there's a lot of things to show and to say, um, and so we are we're fine. The view of the soup kitchen yeah. is has got to be uh, one of the more intense views in in your city or or mine. Yeah. I mean, and just seeing them line up with the meter and between them, and there's a lot of arguing and. And, and I can just tell that these people are having a very, very different experience than, than the one that I'm having, so I'm not going to complain. My goodness. Yeah, 7.30 yeah. on a Monday evening in Paris, and yeah. they're lining up yeah. just as they are out here. Cheryl Lulantan is a New York-based journalist and best-selling author whose novel Sarong Party Girls introduced me to the true powers of Singlish, that captivating brand of Singaporean English. She is in Singapore now, and her journey from a country with one of the world's most chaotic responses to coronavirus back home to high-tech confinement in Singapore is the stuff of good governance daydreamers everywhere. Here's our conversation. Let's start with what happened when you landed in Singapore. You got the last, the last nonstop home. The very, very last one. I was actually supposed to fly on Saturday, and um, I like. Six, six days later, and then my flight got canceled. And uh, so I managed to get a seat on the very, very last flight out, um, which was, so I had to leave like four days early, uh, three or four days early. It was an intense flight because we were all there for a purpose. It felt like almost, you know, being airlifted out of a war zone. Um, it was very tense. Uh, you know, everyone was very quiet and people were not terribly chatty on the plane. When you guys landed, did, did the plane break out in in applause when you landed did everybody start clapping uh, it's funny but no uh, and i actually recorded it thinking that people would clap and they didn't um and and they normally do because um singapore airlines one of the things i love about flying singapore airlines uh back to singapore is at the end you know they always say you know you know and for singaporeans who are coming who are who are on this plane, you know, welcome home. And that's always, you know, it's, it's kind of cheesy, but that's always a moment where I go like, oh, you know, that's really sweet. And so I actually thought that people would clap at that point, but I think everyone was just so tense and not quite sure what was coming next. So you come off the plane and you're met immediately before getting your bags. Yeah, so we had the moment we um, we got off the plane, we we're literally in sort of the, the gate area. And um, and so there were there were there were dozens of people just waiting for us there. And once once they cleared us through the the form process, um, they separated us into groups of ten. I was actually in the very first group um, because I was just anxious to to get to wherever we were going. And um, and then they just sort of walked us through the whole thing. It was very organized. It was like you know you 
It's like if you go to the bathroom, the entire group has to wait for you. And I've never, you know, Singapore Changi Airport is one of the busiest airports, and it was just eerie to see. It was just this, this sort of like ghost town, and um, and so they just sort of walked us through the entire process. We went through a bunch of temperature sensors. Um, there were one or two that we we saw while we were going through this who were taken to the hospital because their temperature was off. You know, I was very impressed by how organized it, it was, and uh, and then they took us straight to. I was quarantined at a hotel on uh, Sentosa, which is our resort island. Um, so there was some sort of it was sort of very strange because you know I've only been to Sentosa with tourists and and you know on like school trips where you go there to sort of frolic on the beach or uh, now people go there to go to the Universal Studios theme park or, or to to play at the casinos. Um, and and here we were sort of being bused there to this sort of like sick camp in a way. Um, and I've actually gotten to know some people on my on that plane since then because we were all stuck in the same hotel together and the funny thing is we found each other on Instagram and so we've actually got this sort of chat group support network going of people who were on that plane were you nervous did you feel um prepared for what what you had to do um, you know, I was mainly wanting to know whether I had the virus and if I was sick. And I, it had been a really tense flight. The 18-hour flight um, is amazing. Uh, the non-stop flight, it's the best way to fly to Singapore from New York because it's, it's non-stop. Um, but the entire 18 hours, I was sitting there going, you know, am I sick? Um, you know, are people around me sick? What am I getting? You know, it, and so, so there was a tenseness. And when I boarded, I thought, you know, you know, if anyone's going to catch anything on any flight, you know, this is a pretty good flight to catch it on because you're there for 18 hours. With a bunch of people who are leaving the, the epicenter, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, on the one hand, I was really nervous about that. But on the other hand, there was this sort of calm, a sense of calm about it because I figured, you know, I'm going to be quarantined for two weeks and I'm going to be quarantined somewhere with an excellent, um, you know, healthcare system. Um, and and a government that's really on top of this. And if I am sick, they're going to figure it out. And if, if once they figure it out, I'm going to be well taken care of. So there was that sense of calm about that too. I mean, you've written about this uh, in the past too. That that the sort of paternalistic view of government is um, is something that you kind of carry with you. As for however much you are an American now, you are also still a child of Singapore. Yeah, and that was uh, part of what uh, made me hesitate uh, when it came to deciding to come back to Singapore to kind of sit this out for a little bit. Um, you know, I, I I kept thinking, well, you know, I'm you know I'm a New Yorker. I can I can handle this. I have a fridge full of food. You know, I I am I work from home. I'm used to this. I I, I don't have to leave very much. Um, and so I didn't. So when my family started pressuring me to come home. Uh, I thought, well, you know, do I really want to go into a situation in which the laws are going to get to the, you know, to get tighter and tighter, and uh, I'm going to find uh, myself more and more restricted in many ways. Um, but you know, ultimately, it was a personal decision to come back. Um, you know, because you know, someone took me aside and said, you know, your your parents are going to get more worried about those headlines coming out of New York. The one thing you can do right now to ease their minds in all of in the in the midst of this pandemic is to just get on a plane and go home. And so I thought, all right, that's fair enough. Um, and so for me, coming back here and thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm getting into um, because there are all these rules. There were rule, many rules to begin with. There are going to be more rules now. Um, so we'll just see how it goes. How how were they keeping track of you besides just plopping you on this resort island? Twice a day, um, 
um, the immigration and checkpoints authority would text my phone and my GPS had to be on. So they had to know they could, they, they needed to be able to trace my phone. Occasionally I would have to, um, the text would require me to take a picture of my surroundings and as well as myself in the surroundings. So they could, they could verify that I was there. But on top of that, the hotel, uh, would check in with me once a day. They gave me a thermometer. I had to take my temperature twice a day and report to them immediately if my temperature was off. Now, if you had if you had been a dedicated scofflaw, someone who was trying to bust out, break your chains, would you would it have been possible? It sounds like this is a pretty effective net that they'd thrown over all of you. I'm pretty sure that I would have been wrestled to the ground before I even got to the elevator. <laughs> um, I mean, they were they were watching us very closely. You know, having having said that, I, you know, I think they, they put this in place because you know, they, they'd had some instances of people breaking their SHN when they were at home. Um, there was this, there's this one guy um, who, shortly before I came back, he uh, was had craved this particular dish and wanted to go to the mall. And so he broke his uh, SHN and went to eat this dish. I'm dying to find out what stall it was exactly. But he was just in court um, a few days ago and he was convicted of this. He was given a huge fine and... Um, the, in the in the story in the Straits Times, it said there were there were people who were pushing for him to get actual jail time, like possibly ten to twelve weeks, um, just for eating, for just for leaving his quarantine to eat this dish. So, um, <laughs> so you know, we were very. Um, cognizant of the penalty that we could pay so you know we were like you know this is not a bad life we're, we're stuck in a hotel can't open our windows um you know it's tiny tiny room uh can't leave the room at all for two weeks but you know at the same time um who wants to go to jail and get a huge fine so you you couldn't even open your windows to get fresh air no, no fresh air. I had a beautiful view of their beautiful pool situation. Some days when like, when it was sunny, I would just sort of like put my sunglasses on and sit by the window and pretend I was at the pool. <laughs> I think from the very earliest moments that we started to recognize what was creeping, a lot of us here in the States, in New York, were just sort of dying for some some sort of competent bureaucracy uh, that we are pretty pretty aware we are lacking here. Um, it does feel like a a a perfectly tailored moment for uh, a country like Singapore that that it has has this sort of paternalistic power and is not afraid to wield it. Obviously, you know, with there's been some reports about migrant workers who were sort of live in dormitories and and are a, a little bit left out of that. Um, sort of parental uh, control and and are having some COVID issues. You know, Singapore is one of the most expensive places to live in the world, the wealthiest, etc. You, you, we make all those lists. and um, But at the heart of it, when you look at it, um, you know, we are only able to, uh, to, to excel on those fronts because of the, the, the foreign laborers that we bring in and house in these dormitories in, you know, in these very, very cramped conditions. You know, something like the virus is making us realize that there really are no boundaries here. We're all one population, um, you know, and how how you treat, you know, the people at the bottom um, is, you know, is 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 going to affect all society, not just that population. I mean, the, the question that comes to my mind, though, for you is what next for you? Has this forced some fundamental recalculation in your mind of whether you are a New Yorker or a Singaporean, um, do you, is it too early to say? I, you know, I, I've always 
felt that you you can be both. Uh, it's funny when I'm in New York, you know, people think I'm some people think I'm very Singaporean. When I'm here, people think I'm very American. So there's always that. <laughs> um, but you know, there there I feel like I will always be both. Uh, obviously, my 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 family is sort of hoping. Oh, you know, if you're here for one month or two months or three or ten, maybe you'll never go back. Um, you know, there's sort and I and some of the people that who were. Uh, on my plane or who have recently come back from the US and UK are facing the same things from their parents who are sort of using this as a chance to go like, hey, maybe, you know, Singapore is better to stay here. Uh, I have a friend who's an artist in uh, in Brooklyn and she came back and her excuse has always been, oh, you know, I don't have this, you know, a space to work here. I'm much, you know, I, I have all my equipment and everything there. And when she got out of um, our hotel and got home, her parents had basically created this art studio for her. <laughs> all the all the paintbrushes and everything she wants. <laughs> and so it's it's a it's it's sort of funny uh, to, to watch what's what's the, like parents here are sort of taking this chance to go like, okay, like, you know, think about moving back like since you're here for a few months. Forget the parental government. You've got the actual Singaporean parents uh, working there. They're at the height of their powers. That's true. That's true. But, you know, I I think I will, you know, I will always be, uh, I will always be a New Yorker. You know, I, I was sitting here thinking, about all the plans I had this summer, I was supposed to teach in in Umbria this summer. I was supposed to teach, uh, you know, like f- like food and travel writing in Umbria, and I was thinking, you know, I would I wanted to visit a f- friends in Greece, yeah, you know, and maybe pop over to to Vienna and like see a concert, you know, at the concert hall there. I've always wanted to do that, um, and you know, when I was sat here a few days ago thinking about what I my summer looks like, I thought, you know, there's really only one place I want to be when this is all over, and it's New York. I want to be there. I want to see the city come back alive again. Uh, You know, I want to sit on the water and have a glass of wine and just like look at that, you know, the East River, the Hudson River, everything. I want to see people jogging. I want to see people kayaking. I want to take a long, long walk in Central Park. Like those are the things I really want to do. I want to sit at Cafe Luxembourg and have a really good burger, Um, you know, and so I you know, I feel like I'm going to come back. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator, show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. We are free and available now on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can even ask Alexa for it if your goddamn fingers are broken. Over at the trip's Instagram, we'll be running some pictures from Cheryl's confinement, including the rather awesome quarantine meals, ranging from Malay curries to Hainanese chicken rice that the Singaporean government fed her while she was over there in her quarantine resort. Happy stomach, happy inmate. Next week, I'll be back in my closet studio, calling anywhere and anyone on earth who seems to have a plan B, plan C, for all this nonsense. We'll meet you there.